Welcome to the Siri Serengeti Podcast. We're your host, David Swinger and Matthew Kinnear. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about the recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take into the office to help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions across this podcast are ours or ours alone do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Hey, David, do you know the reason that job numbers are going up is ransomware crews have had to get a second job to help cover the costs of their mansions. It's truly sad. Well, at least that means they don't have to cut down on staff. Oh, God, I didn't even think about that. Can you like, oh, this year, just like just like these companies, we didn't make our profit targets from our ransomware. We're going to have to let go a third of the developers and all the fishers. Yep. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have to cut back to the cheapest access broker. Actually, that'd be interesting. I would I would actually love to see an article on the economics of that. Do they like double down and hire more fishers to try and get more targets or do they I don't know. Anyways. Yeah, actually I think that would be really cool. To actually have like an an economist actually go out and like hang out with a ransomware crew for a while or something. Yep. Uh, and, for all uh, the economists in our audience, audience, there's your there's your graduate thesis. Get to it. Yep. And you know who you are. <laughs> actually, you know what? I, I, you know what, though? Actually, that's not a bad. If you had like a double major in programming and economic or something, economics, and you had the programming chops to get in as like an undercover operative and then like do your thesis on the economics of it, that's even better. That'd be even cooler. Yeah. Other than the breaking the law part, but whatever. Or end up at the bottom of a river. I don't know if ransomware gangs do that, but yeah, it's, that's a, that's yeah, a risk. It's always possible. All right. Our first article is ransomware revenue significantly down over 2022. And this comes to us from Malwarebytes. So according to Chain Chainalysis, we've talked about them before. It's a blockchain analysis company. Ransomware revenue has dropped from 765 million in 2021 to 456 million in 2022. And that's based on their analysis of known cryptocurrency wallets. So when they do, and they of do course admit, they admit that that's not perfect. That's just what they know about. Yeah. So they did give multiple possible explanations for why the revenue dropped so much. A three hundred and nineteen million is quite a bit. They proposed fewer attacks, lower ransom demands, or better negotiations. Or you know, quote, we don't negotiate with terrorists. And Malwarebytes says that their own research agrees with chain analysis, and they think that this is the main reason that companies just are not paying it. And the research they did was watching ransomware publishing sites looking for the data to be published to indicate that the ransom was not paid. And of course, they give a couple of different reasons why there would be an increase in the amount of, of organizations that are refusing to pay the ransom. And the first one I get this as would be an ethical reason if, if companies really took this into consideration saying that, well, you know, if we pay, that's just going to keep the ecosystem alive, which I'm not sure if that's really a, something that a company is thinking about when they're under the gun and having their, all their stuff ransomware. Probably so not. I'm skeptical about that reason. Yeah. I but, mean, companies aren't supposed to be ethical, right? Their only morals is to make as much money as possible. Well, I'm not going to argue that. <laughs> well, that's if you believe, what is it? Was it John Maynard Keynes that said that? He said in the long run, we're all dead. I, I think you're thinking of uh, Milton Freeman said that ah, that's, there we go. that's the purpose of a company is to make profit. Yep. Yep. The only moral imperative or something like that of a company. Right. But that does, that but morals and ethics aren't exactly the same thing. But That's another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's something we can argue about later, which actually may come up later in the podcast, but uh, we'll get there. But another reason is there's obviously no guarantee 
that they're that they're actually going to unlock your systems once you do pay them because they get their money so they just bug out. I am astounded. I cannot believe that a villain would do such a thing. Well, if you recall when we were reading the uh, the interview with that one ransomware guy, he felt bad about it, <laughs> but he wanted to get paid still. Well, he'd already gotten paid, and they couldn't oh. decrypt. And he's like, "Oh, oh you're right. No, they had a they had a bug. Yeah, 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 yeah." yeah. Uh, and he felt bad. Yep, truly and bad, so, but not enough to refund, right? Yeah, well, he suffered enough. So just paying the ransom, an another reason is just paying the ransom doesn't automatically restore all your systems. So there's a time lag there. Which I find so interesting. It's so fast. They op obviously, and obviously this is because that's where the incentives are. They're incentivized to write, write ransomware that encrypts as fast as possible to prevent you from stopping them. I'm just so disappointed that they don't also optimize the decryption part of it. Yeah, they don't care. They're not like looking yep. for repeat customers. Do not. <laughs> five out of well, five ransomware experience was great. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they are looking for repeat customers, but you know, the customers aren't going to seek them out, I guess. You know what though? You're right though. Because if they're, if they're terrible on the other end of it, the second time they ransomware them, they're going to be like, you know what? We're just going to restore from backup. These guys were terrible before. Yep. I'm telling you, Yelp for ransomware. <laughs> Let's solve all these market problems. Another reason is organizations have learned the importance of backup, which obviously they didn't know before. And uh, finally, one of the, re the, the reason is in some cases, it's prohibited to do so due to embargoes or sanctions against certain companies or countries. Because the U.S. is very fond of sanctioning individual crews claiming nation state affiliation, which then makes it illegal, at least in the United States, for someone to pay the ransom to that crew. And then here, as for my contrarian take, I, I wonder if chain analysis just hasn't found the new method they're using to hide or transfer funds, and they're just getting better at dodging their analysis. I have no idea if that's true or not. Yeah. Well, I mean, you never know when they... It, it, imagine this, though, that you're a ransomware crew, and what you do is you spin up a new wallet for each thing. So they would only identify the wallets that got paid into where there was an association to a ransomware event. Otherwise, they wouldn't realize it that 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 wallet was a ransomware wallet. Yeah. 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 People don't report the ransoms. Then how are they going to, well, I guess they would, they could do it by simply numbers. Like how, how many people are getting, you know, multi-million dollar deposits in their wallet. But I don't know. That's a good question. Huh? Uh, I'm not sure how chain, I, I'm not familiar enough with the way you look into the blockchain. If that's something that I could figure out myself by writing a script or something to see the transactions. The number of transactions has got to be mind-boggling, though. Yeah, yeah, you definitely would need some processing power, but I bet you 100% could write your own script. Like, that's the whole point of it is it's all public, right? Right, the public ledger. Yeah. But like I said, I'm not sure how you how you see into it. Maybe if I get motivated enough, I'll look into it. But the, the according to AAG, which is an IT service provider, the attack count that they saw was, or, or, or that they have seen for this year, is 236 0.1 million, and that's just for the first half of 2022. But throughout the entire year of 2021, there was 623 million ransomware attacks, and this is across the entire planet. Yeah, this uh, has got to be this has got to be not successful ones, right? This has got to be attempts. Well, I think this is probably both. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, attempt and successful one, sure. Right, but overall, seeing that the the just the, even the attempt count is down seems to agree with what the other, what the chain analysis was saying. Yep, that's fair.
And of course, we're more likely to hear about a tax where someone dis, you know, where someone is not going to pay because that's when the ransomware crew says, Hey, they start threatening, start posting stuff about it and so on versus quietly paying them. And of course, this whole industry has spawned a new form of, of more response, which is negotiators, people who actually get paid simply to negotiate with ransomware crews in order to try to bring that cost down. And this reminds me, and this is kind of a spinoff, an existing niche market of kidnap negotiators. So you see a lot of this in Central and South America and other parts of the world. And there's a book called Kidnap Inside the Ransomware Business or Inside the Ransom Business written by Anya Shortland. And there'll be a link in the, uh, in the show notes to an interview with her talking about the economics of kidnapping and negotiating ransom. And I think based on that interview and what takes place in, in the ransomware business, it's almost equivalent. I just put that on my wish list. That looks interesting. Yeah. Another one you should get, which is really interesting, is The Invisible Hook, The Economics of Piracy. Turn it into a book review podcast. But of course, why this matters, you know, this, actually, I kind of think this is almost a distraction because Matt and I have talked about this before, that the real scourge is business email compromise. In 2021, the number of complaints to the FBI for BEC was almost 20,000. But those 20,000 equated to $2.4 billion in losses. Yeah, and I was uh, just telling I was just telling David before we started the podcast, I put a laptop up on Facebook and within five minutes, I got four messages, all people offering extra money to ship it to them. So that way is- Way beyond shipping costs. Live and well, yeah. Hundreds of dollars extra. Sure, so legit. They just desperately wanted that, that decades old shitty laptop you have. Maybe I should ask them to pay me in gift cards and they can send me, <laughs> send me the activation codes. I'll sell it for one Walmart gift card for $1,500. No, 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 no. You got to do you got to do 30 Android or Google Play gift cards. Oh, Xbox gift cards. And I can send them the, I can send them the instructions on how to dodge the, 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 the stores, you know, they'll only sell you X number and they'll ask you if it's for a scam. You tell them, no, it's not for a scam. I'm legit. Of course. All right. The next article is how pass keys are changing authentication. And this comes to us from CSO Online. And I don't think we've actually ever talked about pass keys on this podcast before. I was actually not 100% sure what a pass key was until I read this article. So I'm glad we looked at it. <laughs> but this is, this is the new latest, greatest thing that's going to replace passwords. You know, um, honestly, I'm still not 100% sure what a pass key is. It's basically like a certificate, but on your phone, right? Yeah, it's a, technically it's a public private key pair where the private key remains on your phone and the public key is given to whoever you're going to authenticate to. And gotcha. the public and then, key is kind of like your username. And you unlock the key with your, with your, by logging into the phone, right? So that's right. the combination of something you have and something you know. Right. So you, you will either use the authentication. I think you use the authentication that's built into the phone. So if you log into your phone with a thumbprint or whatever, yeah. or a face ID, that's the, that's how you authenticate to the application on your phone, which then allows that key to be, to endorse the public key. Gotcha. All right. So pass keys are an approach to authentication that is multi-factor with an em emphasis on the device. So your handheld or your computer or whatever as the first factor. So something you have, whereas with the multi-factor authentication you see before, that's the, the 
thing you have is your second factor. The passkeys now also includes the ability to do cloud storage for syncing between the devices. So we'll walk through and the how it works, which I pulled directly from the Fido Alliance's website, which is the where the passkey actually comes from. So the first part is registration, and then the second part is login. So registration is how you set set it up at any particular site. So to quote from the how-to page on FIDO is the user is prompted to choose an available FIDO authenticator that matches the online services acceptance policy. The user unlocks the FIDO authenticator using the fingerprint reader at a button on the second factor device securely entering the PIN or other method. The user's, the user's device creates a public-private key pair unique to the local device, online service, and the user's account. The public key is sent to the online service and associated with the user's account. The private key or any information about the local authentication method, such as biometrics measurements or whatever, never leaves the local device. So once you've got that set up, your authentication set up with the online account, then when you go to log in, the online service challenges the user for the login with the previously registered device that matches the, the acceptance policy. The user unlocks the FIDO authenticator using the same method that they did on the registration thumbprint, base ID, or PIN, however they've got their phone set up. Uh, the device uses the user's account identifier provided by the service to select the correct key and sign the key and sign the service's challenge. The client device sends the signed challenge back to the service, which verifies the stored public key and, the lo and logs in the user. All right, so I'm going to play the ingenue here. I've noticed recently, I thought this was just an Android thing, but maybe this is a passkey thing. When I log into an account, it's still using a password on a new computer, but then I get a prompt in my phone, which I assume would be where the passkey is. And it says, did you just try to log in on this device? No, that's no, different. That's different. All right. No. What but would, is... it, would, it, would it act in the same way? Because if you've got that passkey on your phone and your phone is kind of your registered device... How would you then log in on like a public computer if you wanted to log in to your email account? On your public computer? I don't think you would. Because <laughs> you'd, have, you'd, have, you'd, to put you'd have to put your private key. You'd have to put your private key on that computer. So that kind of leaves that po that possibility out. Huh. All right. Um, I know you're not an expert on this. I know that you have you have only only more you have, you have you look like an expert to me because I know nothing about it. But yeah, I only know slightly more than you. And if I <laughs> Well, we'll get to something else, which I think is a better alternative here in a couple of minutes. Okay. But of course, this is not this is not a panacea, although people would like to say so. So if the device is lost, stolen, or destroyed, the process requires requesting the passkey from each service. So for every place you've ever used it, then you're going to have to redo that. If the device is stolen and someone is able to break into the device or unlock it, they gain access to your passkey. And since the, the credentials are not bound to a specific device, the user can enroll them using a managed device, but then, oh, I'm sorry, let me clarify this, this one here. So this, this, this particular last issue relates to corporate instances where you're using a passkey in a corporate environment where someone could use their corporate device to register and, and then take their passkey from their corporate device, move it to a personal device, and then authenticate to a corporate resource using a personal device. And I'm not sure exactly, unless you've got 
unless your core, unless your managed device is allowing you to sync that passkey to some other cloud instance, I'm not sure exactly how you get the passkey off the corporate device and onto your personal device, but they say that specifically as a risk in the, in the paper. But the other problem that which they is not mentioned in the paper is that you're, this locks you into a vendor like Microsoft, Google, or Apple, because if, when they talk about cloud syncing, they're talking about cloud syncing across that vendor's cloud, not in the cloud in general. So if you have a Google passkey, which you're storing in the Google ecosystem, you can't use it in the Apple ecosystem because, they're, because it's not shared. It's shared only within that cloud. Now, once, guess, I'm sorry, God. once password managers that are cloud agnostic start storing these, then you'll be able to sync it across ecosystems. So my first thought about that was, well, that's good because if one of them gets stolen, then you only lose access. You'd only have to deal with stolen. But on the other hand, if they're all in your device, it's difficult for somebody to only steal one, isn't it? No, they would like, end up with all of them. Yeah, because if they break into your device, they can just grab them all. Hmm. Interesting. So it's going to be easier than passwords, but if it gets stolen, it's going to be so much more painful than passwords. It, it, if, if the integrity of your device is compromised, it's it's the same thing with, uh, you know, any pa a password manager. You know, if someone were to, to compromise the integrity of your pass manager, they get everything. So the same thing in this case, but it would just be the integrity of your device that That's they fair. would need to compromise. Interesting. Um, Interesting how much more things are relying on our phones. Right. I don't know if I like this. Whereas at least with a password, with a, a password vaulting solution that's in the cloud, you usually have to have a, the, the device and the passcode instead of just getting access to basically the local database on your, on your phone. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. So once the FBI gets Celebrite to crack, crack your iPhone, they're going to have all your passkeys <laughs> to all your, and the reason this is important is. This is probably going to place, replace passwords for major sites. The board members on the FIDO Alliance, which is backing this whole initiative, I'm just going to, this is a non-inclusive list, but the, the are the big ones, Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Intel, Bank of America, PayPal, and Visa. So you can see with that kind of backing behind this initiative that this is probably going to go places and be instituted at, at, at least at the very large vendor sites anyway. Now what you can do about it is, you know, if you have some influence in your organization, for how your customers authenticate to your site, you might want to consider implementing something like this, which is still, it's still, even with the flaws, it's still better than passwords, but it, you can't say that it, it's a foolproof method for securing accounts though. But as I mentioned before, I think there's a better solution actually, which is very similar to this, which is Steve Gibson's secure, quick, reliable login squirrel. It's very similar, but it's, I think it's a much more elegant solution. It has a robust account recovery that's independent from the device or the vendor because it uses paper as your, as your backup for account recovery. And there's a link, there'll be a link in the show notes to the page at GRC Gibson Research Corporation, where Steve hosts all the documentation for this. So there are four white papers and there are several videos where he walks through the entire squirrel ecosystem and how it works and everything. It's very thorough. And I think it's very well thought out. It took him five years to develop this and he completed the development of it about three years ago. But it's, of course, it's, he doesn't have the backing of all these large companies. So the adoption has been virtually non-existent, but I think it's a much better method for doing this. And also his method for sharing devices is, is much cleaner as well. All right. How exciting. So now for our ranting segment, we're reviewing <laughs> articles. 
<clears throat> I saw an article called The View from Davos, The Changing Economics of Cybercrime. And dun, of, course dun, I, dun. of course, I felt like we had to chime in. So the 2023 World Economic Forum in Davos had a panel on ransomware. And I'm sure that all of the rich folks who jetted over in their private planes enjoyed a rich discussion on cybercrime. After waxing philosophical about how much the rest of the world needs to reduce their emissions and stop being so greedy. Well, those panels were gold. <laughs> I mean, literal it, gold. It, it, yeah, literal gold. <laughs> I mean, if, if the elites did not tell us how to live, you know, how would you know to even get out of bed in the morning? I mean, off your pile of stress. <laughs> yeah, nothing would ever happen. We would all just sit around lolling about. Yeah. So the main point of the panel, there actually was a couple of things in here, despite my comment about rich elites. Uh, there were a couple of interesting things in here. The main point of the panel was that cybercrime is a, quote, risk created by humans driven by the economic conditions of high profit and easy opportunity. So just like white collar crime, like wage crime theft. In general. <laughs> well, so it depends though. I didn't, I don't think we talked about this on the podcast, but I know we talked about an article on how different types of crime are arrested at far different rates. I think it was murders or like 50% of murders get arrested and oh, you assaulters. Mean the clearance rate. Yeah, the clearance rate. And like car theft, like 14% of people get arrested. And I think for white collar crime, the clearance rate is incredibly low. Unlike drug crime, which is incredibly high. Well, I think it depends on who you are. I think if you're the, the, the street level dealer in drug crime, yeah, you probably get arrested all the time. Yeah. Well, I think that's where they originate all their cases. Yeah. I'd have to look at the numbers, but the number 65 is is sticking in my head about the clearance rate for drug crime. Because that's that's really what the, the cops focus on because it's easy. Yeah. Everything else is hard. They don't, cops are lazy. So here's one. White collar crimes are estimated to make up 3% of federal prosecutions. Annual losses from white collar crimes are anywhere from $4.26 to $1.7 Cool. It's nice estimated 90% of white collar crimes go unreported. Wow. Oh, nice. White collar crime business. prosecutions are down like 60% since 2009. That's really interesting. I wonder why. Anyways, so yeah, high profit, easy opportunity. Also sounds like companies taking advantage of child and slave labor. Yeah, it's just like children working in the cobalt mines for the electric cars. I mean, so really like maybe this was an educational panel for the people in Davos as a, as a, like a business expansion opportunity. How they could do more criming. All right. Anyways, out of the out of the actual meat of the article, <laughs> so there are four items that make cybercrime so lucrative on the opportunity side. That easy opportunity. The first one is crypto. They, I think, the person making this presentation was someone from Europe. I'll tell you about how it makes it easy to launder and receive money without dealing with banks. So yes, dealing with banks is easy, but is laundering it still easy? Well, it's still got to go out through a financial institution. Yeah, so. like cashing out's the problem. Yeah, and 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 the thing is. Not dealing with banks. Banks are notorious for doing money laundering for the for the drug cartels. So it's not yeah. like banks are unwilling to do <laughs> money laundering for criminal entities. Just talking about volume. Yeah, and we just got to find the right the high numbers a minute ago. <laughs> yeah, what? banks are not going to leave that money on the table. Oh, that was the white collar crime. Yeah. Or no, no, you're talking about you're talking about the 465 million for ransomware. Yeah, that's right. enough money. Yeah. that's enough money to get a banker to. Yeah, they put on their pants for that. Item number two, not enough fear of being caught, which actually makes me wonder. We mentioned the clearance rate. I wonder what the clearance rate on cybercrime is. Oh, it's got to be there's ridiculously no, low. Like 1%. So, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier about the reported fraud and scams. I mean, wasn't there like 3 million of those reported last year or something? And those people never get caught. So 
Yeah. Also, what counts as a crime? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but when we were talking about the re- required reporting on crimes, crimes happen at every company every day. Like every time an attacker logs into your system without permission, that's technically a crime under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, and that doesn't always get reported. In fact, I would wager that it does not get reported unless money is lost. Yeah. And the crime takes place and they don't even realize it because they don't have the proper the detections in place. But what we also talked about before was if there's a low amount of money lost, the cops won't even bother doing the investigation at yeah, all. It was like, wasn't it under, under like $10,000 or under? Oh, it, it's actually much higher than that. Is it? Uh, yes. No. Yeah. We're talking about six, six, it's got to be more than six digits. Ridiculous. Uh, finally, or not finally, number three, explosion <laughs> in spending on digital transformation because data is so much easier to steal than physical objects. And now criminals can victimize corporations anywhere in the world without even leaving their couch. Well, it's poor corporations. Ah, who will think of the rich people? This, the, what they said was one of the reasons that, or the reason that this can happen is lap, lapses in basic hygiene, like encrypting data at rest, encrypting data transit, and limiting access to only authorized persons. And I think those are not the best three items they could have picked for <laughs> poor hygiene. Um, I mean, they're talking to rich people with limited understanding of how the world actually works. So, yeah, and encryption sounds <laughs> fancy. So maybe that's why they use mm. encryption. Yeah. Because LastPass was doing all those things, and yet still they got had. I wonder you how know. many people are going to come back from this and immediately go talk to their CISO and be like, we need to encrypt data at rest and in transit. And the sister's like, oh God, what panel did you attend? Yeah, these board members from these uh, corporations (laughs) are going to back and say, you know what I heard while I was at Davos? (laughs) Just what they should have, better examples of of hygiene may have been patching, maybe. (laughs) What? (laughs) Patching? Who does that? You know, account and password management, maybe? Segmentation? No, but you're right. You're right. The the board's heard that before. That doesn't give them something new to come back and flagellate everybody back in the in the security organization with. I can't believe you're not encrypting data in transit. Actually, we are because it's in the web like. browser. <laughs> and we use web portals for everything. So yeah, I they just could have been better. Could have been better. But they talk about this digital transformation. But one thing they don't mention about it is security is not is still not being built in. As part of these digital transformations, it's still an add-on. It's still another product. It's still another plugin. Security is still not at the core of anything that's new being developed. Yeah. The final item was paying ransoms leads to more ransoms. Uh, we've already talked about that one. I don't know if we need to go into it in detail again. Looks like triples. You get one yeah. triple, you get another triple. Yeah, yeah. So here the article pivots into talking specifically about how insurers have a responsibility to assist the companies they insure in dealing with their risk. I thought that was kind of a weird pivot. But maybe I think, there were a lot of insurance companies at Davos. I think, well, I think the reason that they, because they mentioned the article about insurance companies paying, paying the ransom and how that was bad. And I, so I think that ties into paying ransoms lead to more ransom. So I think they pivoted into the insurance industry because of the fact mm-hmm. that most ransoms are now being paid by insurance companies, not uh, straight out of companies' pockets, I think. That's fair. But that statement, though, I think makes sense. But the insurance company doesn't really have a responsibility to assist the companies. They have a responsibility to their own shareholders uh, to help those companies with their risks. So they don't end up bearing the consequences of those risks. Because if the insurance company agrees to accept the risk transfer from a company, then it's their responsibility to ensure that they haven't taken on more risk than they really should have in accepting that. So... 
that's when the author suggests the insurance company should ask their client a number of questions, such as validate that the client is spending enough on their budget on controls that matter, like encryption and place and then transit. What is enough? You know, uh, whatever, take whatever your budget is and triple it. I've, it would have been a better thing to, or a better way to, to ask the question would have been to ask if the company is proper, properly prioritizing their, their security spend, not are they spending enough on, on the controls that matter? Because both those things are, are nebulous. What's enough and what are the controls that matter? All of them. Make yeah. sure the client is improving cyber hygiene. Is the client breaking management silos? That just sounds ridiculous to me. It, it sounds good, but how can you can you tell me how that is reducing risk? I mean, and if the and if the company were to do the two previous ones, is this one even important? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know how this reduces risk. I'd like to see more management silos broken personally, mostly because I never hear about things until it's too late. But I don't, and I don't know how you break management silos without just you know taking the number of meetings you have and tripling them so that everybody is. Having meetings with everybody. I the thing know. is, everybody can't do all the things. So solids exist for for a non for a reason. You could try to. You know, you, you're not going to eliminate the silos, but you can maybe improve crosstalk between the silos. I don't know, mm -hmm. but still, I think you need to tie that back and and show how that that reduces risk in order to make that a priority or make that important. Fair enough. Can the client quantify their risk? And my question here is: Can anyone quantify their risk? There are formulas. <laughs> yes, they're obviously correct all the time. Every time. <laughs> That's why insurance companies know exactly how much they can spend on, you know, insurance premiums and stuff. Mm, and they're correct because they always get it right and they still make money at the end of the year. Finally, can the client improve if they can the client can improve their insurance coverage if they improve the above questions? And I'm not remembering I I think they mean the quality of their coverage or maybe if they're improving the above questions, they're not really improving their coverage. They're improving the profit margin of the security company, of the insurance company. I know, but these questions were directed at an insurance company. And what I would say is, why bother with these? Why bother with any of these questions unless that's true? Because the well, whole point them, in doing these things uh, is to reduce risk, reduce costs, and improve the insurance. So that that, yeah. that last question doesn't make any sense at all to me. Well, I think that at least one of those questions did. If the client is improving their cyber hygiene year after year, they probably do have a lower risk. Although no, 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 no. I'm saying that last that last question specifically. How can oh. the client improve coverage? Like oh, okay. if they're doing the above things, then that should equate to improving coverage. Oh, Otherwise, why ask, why, why ask separately? Gotcha. Yeah, why why do any of those things? I think that question just answers itself. That's fair. All right. So uh, this does track with some things that we have spoken about before and about insurance getting more involved. I, can all these questions even be accurately answered in an annual questionnaire? I, I don't I don't know. I wouldn't think so. Yeah. You and I have talked about before that insurance companies should be more involved in the companies yeah. directly, actually. And, you know, reading through this has actually got me wondering if, if it may if it would make sense for insurance companies to get more involved in producing real threat intelligence that they can provide to their customers in order for those customers to properly categorize, prioritize, and reduce the threats to their organization specifically. And this reminded me, talking about book club, remind me of another book called 
Tom Stranger, interdimensional insurance agent, which is really good. Probably a bit too libertarian for a, a lot of folks, but the, the basic premise behind the Tom Stranger's character anyway is to do everything he can in order to reduce those risks for his insurance, for the companies that are, are customers of his, of his insurance company. And if you get the, and if you get the audio book, it's read by Adam Baldwin, who played Jane on Firefly. So that's awesome. So interestingly enough about this, I don't see any version of this except the audiobook version on Amazon. I think it was written for, I think he was contracted to write it for Amazon. Oh, or I think it's an exclusive. For, for Audible? Yeah. Interesting. But there's a series of three books, I think, or maybe it's, it's two books and then one which incorporates the previous two. But I really liked them anyway. Uh, I'm, I'm super interested in this, but I don't do audiobooks and I'm sad. Well, maybe you can get a transcript, read the transcript. We should, we should be sponsored by Audible and then I could get a free audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can get an audiobook with a discount code. Hey. Yep. Just and, add ranting at checkout time. And finally, they end with an exhortation to use best practices and problem is solved, just like climate change. We'll just all use best practices. And, and there's a, here's a quote from the end of the panel, fighting cybercrime is like a team sport, just like capitalism, except the coaches and the quarterbacks get all the money and the defensive line gets pennies or dollars. And, and concussions. <laughs> Hopefully not. You're doing emphasis wrong if you're getting concussions. <laughs> I, was talking, I was talking about the defensive line. But I mean, I would say capitalism is not a team sport, though. Well, I was yeah. making fun of the companies that always talk about, like, we're a team. So I, I, I see. Yeah. Where we have team members and go team and yeah. Yeah. It's, rah, that, rah, it's rah. that, it's the, the thin veneer they put over it to make you realize that for capitalism to work, you have to produce more than they pay you. But mm -hmm. anyways. Well, there's the old joke of they make a loss on every product, but they make it up in volume. <laughs> up in volume. Yeah. That, that actually works for InfoSec because InfoSec is not a profit center. So. Losing money for every analyst. All right. So why does this matter? I partially because I saw Davos and I wanted to laugh and joke about hypocritical rich people for a bit, but I also thought it was really interesting how involved they were on insurance. As this was a technical, as this was a panel in, bunch of, in front of a bunch of non-technical folks, I am not surprised at all. They didn't want to get technical. That makes sense. But it was interesting that the, it seemed like the primary gist of this was insurance, which as we've discussed in the past, I think this is where things are going to continue to go. Yeah. Well. Consider they were talking about insurance and, you know, the previous article we talked about where, and it was actually mentioned in this article as well, the chain analysis analysis, chain analysis analysis, chain analysis, um, analysis. <laughs> that says that one of the main reasons that ransomware is down is because people refuse to pay. So I'm kind of surprised actually that there wasn't the suggestion by the panel or the author of this article to say Insurance companies simply should stop paying ransomware, period. I could, I was wholly expecting that to come out at the end of the article. So I'm kind of surprised. Yeah, especially, it seemed like the main person they were quoting was someone from Europol. So that does seem like that's a mess. Although again, it might just be the article didn't mention it. Yeah, of course. And there's nothing you can do about this. This is just our, we just enjoy bitching about this stuff on occasion. Yeah. And maybe it's just that I'm jealous and I really wanted to go to Davos and hang out with rich people and models and pretend to be rich for a weekend. And go skiing. Go skiing. Go, go to Switzerland. I'm sure they ate really delicious food the entire time they were there. Whew. Well, when you can afford it, I'm sure you can get delicious food just about anywhere. 
Yeah, I'm sure if I save, if I pinch my pennies and stop having those lattes in the morning, CNI too will be rich. Yeah. Well, if your lattes didn't have that gold leaf in it, you could save even more money. That's it was like this, uh, the bottled water article I sent you with the like yeah, right, right. $25,000 bottle of water in the gold. Ah, that's what they're drinking at Davos. Every, every, every rich person got a bottle of water. And they're like, refill the bottles of water. <laughs> we're not giving you two $25,000 bottles of water. No, those were the low end ones that were actually in the bathroom. <laughs> they don't have toilets. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know what you meant. So. <laughs> Mel Brooks, History of the World, Part One. I haven't seen that in like 25 years. Oh, where the king calls for the piss boy? Like, (laughs) just bring the bucket over. Huh. I should rewatch that. You should. I love me some Mel Brooks. All right. Article number four GoTo revealed that threat actors stole customers' backups and encryption key for some of them from security affairs. So, we of course discussed the LastPass breach a few weeks ago, but it turns out it wasn't just LastPass affected. GoTo, formerly LogMeIn, provides, quote, cloud-based remote work tools for collaboration and IT management, had this lovely quote from their investigation. Our investigation to date has determined that a threat actor exfiltrated encrypted backups from a third-party cloud storage service related to the following products. Central, Pro, Join.me, Hamachi, and Remotely Anywhere. We also have evidence that a threat actor exfiltrated an encryption key for a portion of the encrypted backups. So, uh Raggy. Well, it's a good thing those people at Davos told them they should encrypt their, 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 their stuff at rest. <laughs> well, they didn't encrypt it in, in transit, so when the attacker downloaded it, it wasn't encrypted. <laughs> oh, boy. So what Go Anywhere did as a result of this was to <laughs> reset the credentials. <laughs> Thank God. And uh, re-off the, the MFA for the customers. Yeah. So it's quote Thomas Jefferson. So we cool? I don't get that joke. Uh, did, it's something did, from Hamilton. No, it's from the epic rap of Thomas Jefferson versus Frederick Douglass. You should watch it. It's yeah, amazing. That one. It's one of the best ones. It's that Thomas Jefferson's like, you're free now. So we cool. And Frederick Douglass is like, no. So good. So good. So a second article, uh, so we found like three articles on this, but they were 90% the same. But one of the articles confirmed that it included account, usernames, salted and hashed passwords, which at least they were salted. Some MFA settings, licensing information, and as mentioned, the encrypted backups and encryption keys of backups. <sighs> What's ridiculous is the keys were co-located, I guess. <laughs> well, it's more convenient that way. Oh, man. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's not good. It is. I wonder what's in the backups, encrypted backups. Is this actual backups of their customer data or is it backups of like the methodology of logging in? Is it backups of customer information that was maintained by GoTo? I'm just wondering. Since they listed it separately, I guess the account names and salted hashes are not what's in the backup. It's something else. Well, that only remember only that one article mentioned it separately. So it's possible that it is part of it. And this other article like called it out. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, since none of the articles gave you an incredible lot of information and not a lot of detail was in there, it's hard to tell. So, anyways, why we're both hit, they are affiliates. I, 
I had to look up what an affiliate means, and usually it means that one company owns part of the other company. I think it was kind of weird they're sharing a backup. There were no further updates on LastPass folks getting hacked. We, when we talked about that, we talked there were a couple isolated instances where people were claimed that their long random passwords, accounts with long random passwords are getting broken into. So I'm guessing that large scale compromises are not happening yet on that. And the attackers probably haven't figured out how to break into everybody's accounts yet. Well, if they're using long, complicated passwords on other stuff, they and they're not using that on their vault, and that's why their vault password got cracked. Yeah, I don't know, but I think the you know I think the statement about affiliates, I'm not sure if that is an accurate representation because sure, sharing a backup provider, oh, okay, that sounds kind of reasonable, but when LastPass was hacked in August. What was stolen was the creds for a developer, which were used in November, which oh, means that a developer at last LastPass had credentials which were able to be used to leverage the go-to data. I'm not sure if that person is dual-hatted and he's getting a paycheck from both companies, but I think there's a tighter relationship between the employees than simply saying that's an affiliate would indicate. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. So why does this matter? Cloud services are trouble. Third-party services are trouble. You should go back to local backups only slash S for those who couldn't tell. Well, you forgot to mention you should use 3.5-inch floppies for that. Uh, so what should you do about it? Well, you should probably strongly consider what detections you have around abuse of these types of platforms. GoTo provides remote administrative abilities. And there's a ton of platforms, even if you don't have this one. Access brokers are using all kinds of similar tech. So you should be monitoring for any type of remote access usage by hash, by process name, by type of behavior, however you can do it. So that's definitely something you should be keeping an eye on. And you should probably have a policy around that type of use as well. Maybe you can't keep it down to like, we all use this one type of access and block everything else, but... Hopefully you can maintain some kind of control over that. Also definitely have two-factor auth enabled for these types of services. I know some of the settings were released on this one, but the 2FA should still protect you if you have it enabled. Right. I think what's understated here is that back backups that contain critical information are critical and probably should be be protected in the same fashion as the, on as the online production critical data is. This kind of reminds me about museums. You know, you always watch in the movies where the, the thief breaks into the museum and steals the, the famous painting or whatever, but the smart criminals would not go to the museum where only 5% of the mu museum's inventory is actually at. They would go to the warehouse where 95% of it's at and it's probably less protected. That's funny. I've never seen a good heist movie do that, but that would be a cool, uh, be a cool turnaround. Yeah, I actually thought about writing something about that because I was listening to a podcast they were talking to about museums and I hadn't even considered that before, that everything that you see in the museum is only that tiny fraction of what the museum actually owns. That makes sense. I actually was reading a story that had a museum heist in it and the twist was that the diamonds on display were fake because the diamonds themselves were so expensive to insure that the insurance company wouldn't let them display it. So they put fake ones out and the thieves stole fake, fake diamonds. That was a good twist. Well, if the, if the museum was really smart, then they would have just quietly sold the, the diamonds to a private collector <laughs> without anybody telling anybody and kept the fakes on display. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> then they have to produce the real ones to prove and they can't. <laughs> and they're like, well, they wouldn't have to produce the real ones though, because the insurance company already is not insuring the 
is not paying to insure the ones on display. Oh, I see. So I see. They just wouldn't insure it, and then they, they just, would just right. sell the. Yeah, they just that makes sell sense. them, and they they do it on the DL, so no one knows that they sold them. So people think the those are actually still legit real ones. Gotcha. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Well, that's all we have for the articles for today. Thank you for joining us, and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.